Welcome to uh, the gathering of Emmanuel Bible Church. We are thankful that you have joined us for worship. We'd encourage you to continue uh, this Lord's Day uh, to not just enjoy that part of our gathering, but also the fellowship, uh, the encouragements, and as we gather around the scriptures now, our exhortation from the Word of God as well. And so if you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, um, and as you do that, let me give you a short kind of introduction to the passage that we look at this morning. It is about the glorious mystery of the church. That's, that's the title, right? Um, Ephesians 3, and it'll be verses 1 through 13. So we do have kind of a lot of ground to cover. But let, let me tell you a couple of things that is interesting about this passage. One that is not that big of a deal, but will come up um, later. And that's that um, what begins in verse 1 of chapter 3 looks like Paul about to pray for these Ephesian Christians. It, it, the way it sounds, for this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, on, on behalf of you Gentiles, it sounds exactly like he's about to lead into prayer. And he will, all the way down in verse 14. So what we have here is a digression. You know, this is like when you and I are talking about something, and then for whatever reason, I start, you know, just talking about something different. Right, like, like you start to speak about something, and because it's interesting, some particular element of that. Maybe we're talking about, you know, hanging out, going to catch a Dodger game, and then all of a sudden, it strikes my fancy that, you know, that Dodger Stadium also hosts, I don't know, like, um, you know, a monster truck rally, and I start talking about monster truck rally. Whatever it is, there's some things that can divert our attention or even our speech, right, towards something else, and this is the diversion. The diversion that is in this section is the mystery of the church revealed, but here's the other part that I want us to keep in mind in terms of where we have come in the book of Ephesians so far. Chapter one, right, was this amazing blessing about God's eternal plan to redeem sinful people to his glory. Remember that refrain, to the praise of his glorious grace? I mean, what we are to understand as part of God's glory is that his glory is best revealed in that he has demonstrated loving kindness, grace, and mercy to individuals who can't deserve it. How has he done that? He's done that through the sacrifice of his own son. So that whatever is given to this, this glorious, redeemed people, this is accomplished because of the person of Jesus Christ. And so on the one hand, in chapter 1, there was the glory of God revealed in his grace. And for all time will be continually revealed in his grace. Part of our eternal existence as redeemed men and women will be to glorify that God, not just until we die, but for eternity, forever. Because he is worthy. We'll never forget that we're trapped in sin and death. And that what we deserved is exactly what we deserved. And yet Christ died that we might be redeemed by his blood, by his death, and through his resurrection. And when you think about that glory, there, there is this emphasis on how good God is. That bleeds into chapter 2. And then these tremendous statements, right, about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't just mostly sick, right? We weren't kind of, you know, in different grades, all right, 
kind of spiritually. We were, we were spiritually dead, not just unworthy, but incapable. And yet by God's grace, he has redeemed us again through Jesus Christ. He has called us to himself. He has let us know that all things that he has, he has designed, his plan unto eternity includes the redemption of a sinful people to be his children. And then that led us in the second part of chapter two to the formation, right, that is this mystery, the formation of the church. The individuals that culturally, socially, and that all in every single way should be enemies of one another, people that have no interest or uh, commonness amongst each other, right, that would not be found together with the same membership to the same places, they have been not just, not just tolerated, but they have been incorporated into one new humanity. That's what it means to be a Christian. I remember as a freshman at UCLA, um, I think I took like a sociology class or something. You know the class you're supposed to take because you're supposed to get an A. <laughs> and, and then as I did, I think one of the things that the professor wanted to do was... Um, was ask people to identify themselves. Now, if you do that today, man, you get all sorts of, we'll, we'll just leave it at that, right? But back then, it was interesting because people would identify themselves as, well, uh, I'm, you know, I'm Nam, I'm Korean American, or I'm Nam, you know, handsome man, or what, you know, whatever you want, you want to identify yourself as. But a lot of people, I mean, a good number, because I remember that, right, three or four of them, the first thing that they said about their identity was, I'm a Christian, Right? And I didn't think much about that, but as the years go on, you realize that's the whole point. That's what chapter two ended us with, that the the, the new humanity, the one new man in Christ, means that, are you Korean-American? Fantastic. If you like your American culture and heritage, great. If you like your Korean heritage and culture, great. Those aren't bad things. God makes diversity and encourages us to enjoy that. But my identity is in Christ. I am, first and foremost, Christian. See, that's the point, that nothing comes before being one in Christ. That's the church. But Paul, I think initially, penning verse 1, thought to go on to speak of how he's praying for these Christians that he loves and cares for in the Ephesian church, and instead he is diverted back to the concept of the church again. And that's what we look at this morning. That's probably too long of an introduction for 13 verses coming still. But still, just to give us an idea of how valuable the church has been. Because here's the final thing that I'll say by way of introducing this passage. If you've read through Ephesians, I I trust that many of you have, if not everyone you know, that is a Christian in this room. If you've read through Ephesians, you'll remember chapter 1. That's phenomenal a wonderful work of literature. You remember chapter two and all the stuff it says about our death and our sin and and life in Christ and how he laid down his life for us. You remember a lot of the applicational stuff that would come in chapter four, chapter five, and chapter six because there's so much good stuff that is thrown together there. You remember much of that. I imagine that for many of us, the part that we'll read fairly quickly with less understanding or scrutiny will be verses one through 13 of chapter three. And yet this passage is Paul's heart digression. As he's writing these very significant things to the Ephesian Christians, 
he finds himself, before he can even pray for them, he finds himself saying, hey, listen, listen, before we leave this topic, I, I want to double down. I want to make sure that you are understanding how valuable the mystery of the church is, how wondrous this concept that we are saved, not to ourselves, but into this community that is the body of Christ. I, I, I think that's the value, hopefully, that we take away from this particular passage. So let me read it, and then we'll begin to unpack it. I'll give you a quick overview. It's just two major sections, but there's a lot of stuff in there. In fact, looking back on it, I think we would have been better served if I had spent like a few weeks on this, just kind of dissecting it, but we would do the best we can, all right? It's the administration of the mystery, um, the mystery that is the Christ church, and it is the ministry, the working out of the mystery that is Christ church. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that is given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we look to this gospel digression, the heart of the apostle as he speaks to the value and the wonder of this mystery now revealed, We pray for the church. We pray for every local gathering of gospel-preaching churches, that they would hold fast to your truth and to one another. We pray for this church, Lord, that we would steward the gospel well, that we think beyond merely what uh, we want and desire and hope for in our lives, that though we are members of other communities, that we think of... our individual families, Lord, that we might cherish that which you have designed to follow us into eternity. Um, The fellowship, the camaraderie, um, the family that is your redeemed people. I pray that the gospel has an impact on our souls, that that is such that we we re-identify, that we are now transformed and different. Even the way that we think about the value of who we are and what our purpose is and, and why we exist and why you have rescued us from our sin. So we take the stewardship of your gospel grace in our lives um, and turn it to worship and service. Lord, remove the distractions that hold us back from thinking more carefully and more delightfully 
<clears throat> about the work of Christ for us. And Lord, in this moment, as we have worshiped, as we have prayed, and as we pray now, would you open the truth of the value of the Son of God to our souls, that we might be saved, that we might be renewed, and that we might cherish the body of Christ on earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we begin with the administration of the mystery. I know the, the outline names are pretty bad, the headings. I, I don't know. Sometimes I just, I just can't come up with something that's good. And what I mean by that is that there is um, Paul speaking to his own stewardship of the mystery of the knowledge of the church of Christ. It is the revelation, how this was made, how this came about, and it is the communities, all of those things that he's going to speak of. Another way maybe to put it is these are the components of how the mystery was un- unveiled, how we came to know about the mystery, which is the body of Christ. Now, I'll explain the term mystery as we go along, but just so we understand in Ephesians in particular, as we talk about the mysterion, the, the mystery, we don't mean it like the Agatha Christie books, right? Like it's there, you just gotta put together the pieces, you gotta be really bright, right? No, we mean by mystery that there is something that, that God intended but that would not be naturally understood to anyone except by supernatural revelation. I'll explain why I'm saying it that way. But the point is, it's not something hidden that you have to find. The idea is that God revealed that this is where it was going, and all of the angels and all the saints of the past go, oh, this is different. And that's the point. The mystery in the book of Ephesians refers specifically, right, to the makeup, the constitution, and the value of the church. Of people who should not get along, and that they do. And you think, well, why is that such a big deal? Well, because in the Old Testament, remember, it is about God's people. And they are unique people. And hopefully they're hoping to draw others to them. And the others that join them would be sojourners. They'd be outsiders. But nevertheless, they could be considered part of them. But by the time we get to the New Testament... It's not about us and them. It is about all of us. And the gospel draws everyone, and the gospel goes out to everyone because anyone that will name the name of Christ can be gathered into Christ's body as a member, right? As a member and belonging to the church of Jesus Christ. So the administration, right, of the mystery. How did did this mystery come to pass? And we begin with the steward. Verse 1 Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. See, this is how the way that it's phrased in the ESV is good. That's exactly how it leads. And you notice that they put a dash after Gentiles to say that he was about to say more, probably about to enter a prayer. And then the digression happens. But a couple of things I want to highlight. Paul, the apostle, is the apostle to the Gentiles. He was a Jewish of Jewish men, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews, according to the book of Philippians, right? He was a Pharisee by training. And yet here he is, he's the primary apostle taking the gospel to the pagan world, to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentiles. And verse 1 here in chapter 3 tells us that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus, meaning he is in jail because of the message of Jesus Christ. 
So remember, we call this as, as one of uh, uh, the prison epistles, a prison epistle, meaning he is in jail as he's writing this. And he's saying in verse one that I'm a prisoner on behalf of Christ and really on behalf of you because I've taken the gospel to you Gentiles. Right? And he's not putting it on them like, well, you know, I'm in jail. You remember? And it's kind of because of you. Right? He's, not, he's not guilting them. He's just letting them know that this is his stewardship. Verse 2, assuming, right? he's saying, I, have, I am a prisoner of Christ on your behalf, assuming that you have heard of this stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And there, I think he's just talking about the stewardship that is his ministry as an apostle. Remember in Acts 9, Paul's on the road to Damascus. Right? And he is literally going to continue his persecution of Christians. He's still a Pharisee of Pharisees and aggressive and uh, uh, inciting violence against the Christian faith. And then the Lord strikes him blind. And then the Lord sends uh, Ananias, um, a believer, to go and take Paul and to take care of him so that he might use Paul for greater purposes than the persecution of his church. And in Acts 9, 15 through 16, this is what the Lord says to Ananias. Go, for he, talking about Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So whatever Paul is, that has happened because of God's calling and his choosing of him. So he's saying, I'm assuming you've already heard of the stewardship of God's grace that has been given to me, right? These are the things that God has placed in my soul, in my life, and how the mystery, verse 3, was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So he's saying, I've written about how this has come to pass. I've mentioned it already, but I just want to double down on the fact that I'm a steward of the mystery that is the church of Jesus Christ. Stewardship. The word that comes up there, you know, in the first part of verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. That's the, word, that's the reason why I'm saying that this uh, um, point one is the administration of the mystery of Christ's body. Because it's a word that does mean that. It means, it's a word that means a plan or an administration. And the point is that Paul is tasked to push forward the plan of God's grace and the gospel ministry of salvation to the Gentiles. That's what he's tasked with. That's the plan. So he's a steward or an administrator. But you know, the English translations don't use administrator because it just sounds weird. Like he doesn't actually go. He just kind of, you know, sends people. You know, he's on a computer typing. That's what we think about administrators. I apologize to all you guys that are administrators. Right? I don't mean to diminish your work. I'm sure it's very valuable. I'm just saying Paul is a steward. That's the way we translate it because he has given that task and he's more than willing to do that task. But it is entrusted to him to push forward the mystery of the gospel for the sake of the church. Right? Um, Point B, verses 4 and 5. It is also, um, Paul also um, speaks of the revelation of this mystery that is the church. Verse 4 says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to the sons of men or to other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. See, it's that term mystery, mysterion. And uh, that Greek word means it's something that is beyond natural knowledge, something that is given to us by divine revelation. And so he's saying, as you read this, you begin to understand the mystery of Christ. 
And what he means by that is not, is not merely that the Christ would come. That's not that. That's not in that category of supernaturally revealed now. That, that was spoken about in the Old Testament for, for, for centuries, right? He's not talking about the forgiveness of sins because, again, right, even with or without the mention of the Christ, right, the concept of faith in God for the forgiveness of sins, that's been mentioned in the Old Testament. What he's talking about is that part of Christ's ministry and his work and his accomplishment on the cross and his resurrection that is now revealed that was unknown previously. That's the mystery. What is that? It's the gathering of people that shouldn't naturally be gathered together. It's the uniting of sinners, all right, based on their sin and their redemption, not based on their culture, their backgrounds, or even their languages. It's about how Christ's church is this hidden mystery. Colossians 1.26 says it's a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The gospel inclusiveness is revealed in the body of Christians. For the Jews, yes, God's people, and the Gentiles, the unsavable non-God's people, are now united into one body in Christ. This fulfills what chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 says was the ultimate purpose for all of the mystery that is new, everything that is revelation now. Look at Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. Speaks of the same mysterion. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So if God's intention was to unite everything in Christ, the church is part of the means of that end. The church is meant to represent that. The church is meant to be the revelation of something that is new, specifically because God is gathering a people under the name of Jesus Christ, because he's gathering all things ultimately for the glory of Jesus Christ, all things in heaven and the things on earth, according to Ephesians 1.10. So Paul says, I'm the steward. Um, this is the revelation of what is new, right? And, and it involves a community of people that is shockingly, all right, unified in their redemption. Verse six says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse six is, is, is a power-packed verse, and, and you can't see it in the English translation, but really there are, three terms that are used that one of the, at least one of them, are made up by Paul, right? But what you do is you add a prefix to each, right? The soon prefix, which, which means that you are saying together with, right? Together with fellowship, together with members, together with partakers. And so the way I would put it is this way. He is saying that these Gentiles now included into the mystery of the church are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers, Fellow heirs, and that would immediately draw us to what is it that the people of God in the Old Testament were heirs to? Well, they were always heirs to the promise, right, of blessing through their father Abraham. Remember Genesis 12? I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
I remember when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and they're accusing Jesus of being born of an, Ill, being an illegitimate child and all that. And he's saying, no, you guys are sons of, of, not of God, but of Satan. And remember, one of the things that they draw back on is, what are you talking about? Now, we're not illegitimate like you. We are sons of Abraham. Because they understood that the blessing of eternal life, of being in heaven, of being with the Lord, it comes by faith like the children of Abraham. They meant it in, in exactly, right, in genetic terms, like we are inheritors, we are sons who are sons who are sons, all the way back to Abraham. Well, because they thought that they were the heirs of promise, the heirs of the Abrahamic blessing. And Paul's, the, the way that Paul writes this is he's saying, see, this is part of the mystery of the church, that these Gentiles, these foreigners, these outsiders, these guys that didn't, didn't even worship Yahweh God, that would eat stuff that is forbidden by the Old Testament, that have cultures and backgrounds and, you know, that, were, that enjoyed and kind of relished in sinfulness, that the scriptures would condemn. These guys are now fellow heirs. They, they're going to inherit all of eternity and every blessing that comes from the faith of Abraham, just like the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians, the Jewish redeemed, right? Fellow heirs, then fellow members. And this is, this is a term that, you know, that almost certainly Paul invented because it's like the word soma, right, which means body or member. And it's like together members or fellow members, and what he means by that, again, is that, is that as, as uh, Elder Frank, if you were at the members meeting, gave an excellent exhortation on what membership means. It means that we are parts, extenuating parts of one body, right? We are members of one another. And if we are fellow members, it says more than just that you are a member of this body, but you are a together member. You are a fellow member. You are a member as significant as any other member, See, my understanding, right, and I could be wrong. I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I often, you know, let you know I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I don't do math well. All, all this stuff, right? But uh, my understanding is that your small toe is not that important, right? Like, in other words, like, you know, your, your, your big toe, your thumb toe. Is that, is that a thumb toe? Your thumb toe, if you cut that off, it's hard for you to push off or to run, to jump, to do all those number things or even keep it balanced well as you're moving, Right? But your little toe, I mean, you just look at that bad boy. He's all curled in and stuff. He's like, he's useless, right? And if you had to cut that off, you would survive and it probably wouldn't affect much that you do. Nevertheless, if I suggested to you, hey, listen, your, your two little pinky toes, those are worthless. Let me just cut them off for you, right? I think you'd be like, no, that would be a form of torture. There's something about us that says, hey, listen, that's still a member of this body, Right? And if at all possible, I would desire not, right, to cut off a, a healthy member of the This is what we're talking about, right? You might say, well, I am not, you know, upfront leading worship. I'm not upfront teaching. I'm not doing. Listen, the point is not what you can do that is visible or upfront. The point is, are you a member? Are you a participant? Does life flow through you in the same way that it flows through the other members of the body of Christ? And this is what Paul is saying. The mystery of the Gentiles is that in the church, the mystery of the church, they're fellow heirs, they're fellow members of the same body. And they're partakers. And let me say it again. It's the same format, right? They are fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
This sounds very similar to his first point, they're fellow heirs of the promise, right? But by saying they're fellow partakers of the promise, I think it includes a lot of things. In fact, a lot of scholars think that by mentioning the promise, because in Ephesians 1.13, it talks about the Holy Spirit, that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, that they're talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry, that, or that's what Paul might mean here. That's, I think that's a good possibility, right? That they are fellow partakers of the promise that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit given to us, Right? through the gospel, and I think in particular, if, if we're going to try to splice it well, I think fellow heirs means that we are fellow heirs of the blessing, the promise to Abraham, and I'll say fellow partakers then is the fact that we are part of the new covenant community, and that God has taken out our heart of flesh and given us, I mean, taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh, and that he has poured his Holy Spirit into us, so that from the inside out, we live this life. Look, the point is simply this, that when Paul talks about the administration of the mystery, in other words, how did this ministry come to be? He's saying there was a steward. This is, this is my task, to let the Gentiles know how tremendously glorious the salvation that we have in Christ is, which includes people that it shouldn't include. This is what the mystery of the church is. He's a steward of that. It reveals something about, right, it's been revealed it's been perceived, not in the past, right, but now, presently, and it is, it is intentionally revealed to be wondrous and surprising and something that we are to cherish. And it's about this community that includes these offbeat, right, once sinful rejects of our community, these Gentiles who are now fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers of all of the blessing that comes from salvation, Paul viewed this mystery of Gentile inclusion to be at the center of his stewardship of the gospel. Now, let me say that again, because I want you to understand this, right? Like, again, this is a digression, and a digression means that, that he cared enough, right, that this bothers him enough, or that it, he cherishes this enough, that it just kind of spills out of him. And what we should take from verses 1 through 6 is that Paul views his stewardship, right, of the gospel and the mystery that is now the New Testament church, he viewed that as the centerpiece of what he is called to preach, to proclaim, and to disciple into. He viewed the mystery of the Gentile inclusion in the church to be at the center of his stewardship of the gospel. Do, do you think of the church that significantly? This is the Apostle Paul. And he thought that this was significant enough, right? Right? This is what we do. I give you one more verse. I think I gave you this last week as well. But in 1 John 1, 3, it says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And I think what that draws us to understand is that the closer our fellowship with God, the closer our fellowship should be with one another. Right? I think, I think that's what 1 John 1, 3 is saying. But additionally, can I say that the church, as a redeemed community, there's room for different people, right? I think this is so significant and helpful to us. Like, like it is easier for us to enculturate, right, our faith. Meaning, like, you know, if I wear a suit, maybe you should wear a suit. You know what I mean? If I don't, you know, I don't know, if I don't eat raw fish, maybe you shouldn't eat raw fish, you know? 
If, if I decide to drive uh, non, you know, ICE vehicles, you know what that is? I can't remember what it stands for. But it means, you know, it's uh, internal combustion engine vehicles, right? Like things that run on gas, then maybe you shouldn't either. Like it is easier to enculturate, right? Like you should wear long pants, short pants of the devil, right? You, like you can enculturate all these things. And believe it or not, there are communities of faith that have done that. And it's easy to do that because it feels like holiness and it feels like attainable holiness, No, the point is there's room for different people in the body of Christ. Some of the most significant and interesting gospel preaching churches that I've had the privilege of visiting, you go and you sit down and you sit down next to a guy who has tattoos that go all the way up to his face. And you're like, oh, that's interesting, right? And then you have this guy who turns out to be like a a judge in the justice system and stuff in a full suit and tie, and nobody else is wearing a suit and tie, including me. And they get together after the service is done. They hug. They talk about stuff. They look like what the body of Christ could look like. You don't have to change what you look like, your culture. Now, you are welcome here. None of those things, what you look like, what your culture is, what you want to talk about, what hobbies you have, none of those things can ever elevate above you represent Jesus Christ. So we get that. Right? So if you're trying to bring in a culture that has to do with sin, no. Because right? it, it contradicts the person and the holiness of Christ. But underneath that, let liberty be liberty. Let people be expressive. Let people be what they are. Because this is where they can belong. Gentiles. Pig-eating Gentiles. Blood-eating Gentiles. Who used to visit the temple prostitutes. That kind of nasty, weird, like, fellow. I've seen that dude. He's weird. He has now become a Christian and wants to be a missionary. But I don't know if he could be at this church, though. See, that, that last part is the part that diminishes the mystery of Christ's church and the power of the gospel. Um, Stuart Briscoe tells this unfortunate story of, uh, of these, these Christians. said the air quotes right now, right? These Christians in South America. And he didn't, he didn't identify which country. I think he just wanted to keep it general. But, um, and a lot of you that have been part of the Baja mission trip will relate to this, right? Because um, in this, whatever this area in South America is, he said these believers, right, they had no interest in reaching the primitive native Indians. And I don't know if you know, our, our Baja mission trip uh, caters predominantly to uh, the indigenous um, you know, we, we call them Indians or Indios, right? The native people. Um, and they are often discriminated against in South America. And, all, and that's not to bust on Mexico or South America. That's like everywhere. Anywhere you go, right? There is a discriminated people. That is, that is what sinners do. They, they take advantage and they don't like other people, right? That's kind of how they work. And it went so far as for people to say publicly that they doubted if Indios have souls. And if they did, then let like the American and the European missionaries try to reach them. And R. Kent Hughes says of that, that story, he says, those who fall so short of God's sympathies and design had better take a good look at themselves to see where they are in regard to God. In other words, th- this is the administration of the mystery that is the church. The steward, the revelation, the community that is the mystery of the church. And now I got to get to the good stuff, right? That stuff is good stuff too. But the even better stuff. And we have about 15 minutes. <laughs> point two, 
right? The second part of this, not just the administration of the mystery. How did the mystery come? Why did, what are the constitution of the mystery? But the ministry of this mystery, like what, what is being done? What, 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 is it, what is it that it accomplishes the mystery that is the church? And we get in, in verse seven and eight, all right? Well, let me forward here a little bit. Um, and we begin in verse seven and eight with, okay, yeah, the minister, right? By God's grace and power. Paul identifies himself in verse seven and eight this way, of this gospel, Right? And again, you notice that he's talking about the mystery of the church, and in the same breath, he is talking about the gospel. He believes that these are interactive and that they are co-joined, and this is how the mystery of the church has developed. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here is a minister and a minister by God's grace and by God's power. And I emphasize that because I think Paul's point in verse 7 and 8 is, it's not me, it's all God. You notice the multiple, right, um, versions of the idea of grace or gift. The two terms used here is translated, I think, properly gift or grace. But look at how often it is used. In verse 7, this is, he's a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given. So it's like five times in two verses, he speaks of gift or grace that explains his ministry. It's about God's grace abounding to establish his ministry and to make his ministry happen. Paul's point is, this is owing to nothing in me, my ability or value. This is all about God's work, his gift, and his grace. If you add to that verse 2, right, where grace and given in the second part of verse 2 is also put, the redundancy of gift and grace over and over tells us clearly that in Paul's mind that whatever the ministry of this mystery is, it is by God's grace and by God's power as displayed even in the apostles' work. The power part is that phrase at the end of verse 7, which is given me by the working of his power. It's a doubling down of similar terms. In fact, the word for work and the word for power there can be used interchangeably. They're synonyms, right? You can use them in different ways, and it is used in different ways throughout the New Testament to speak of God's power. But here, Paul doubles down to say that, there, that there's a working of his power. He uses one in a verbal form and one in a noun form to say that it's like his power is, is powering, Right? To double down on the fact that it is just all God. God is the one that does it all. And when he comes back to himself, look at the verse part of verse 8. To me, all right? So we say it's all of God's grace. It's of all of God's miraculous and supernatural power. And then verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Now listen, you might feel like, okay, like maybe that's kind of the, you know, that exaggerative, you know, uh, modesty that, uh, that we should all be about. And maybe you might un- unintentionally interpret Paul's statement as kind of like the, at least the verbal posture that we're supposed to take. Oh, yeah, I'm the least. Oh, yeah, I'm the worst. I'm the worst, you know? And, you know, it's kind of like it's when people say stuff like that, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know what to say. Should I agree? Yeah, you're the worst, right? Or, or am I supposed to go, no, you're not the worst. You're like close, but you're not the worst, right? Like, what are you supposed to do in that? 
And Paul is not drawing attention to himself in some kind of an exaggerated modesty. What he is doing is he is speaking to something that rightly expresses his position, right? He keeps talking about Gentiles. So why does he talk about him himself being the least? Because he's not a Gentile. In fact, not only is he not a Gentile, he is a Jew amongst Jews, a Hebrew amongst Hebrews, the best of the class of the Jewish believers, right? He studied as a Pharisee, studied under Gamaliel, the great teacher of, of, of Judaism at that time. And so his credentials are solidly everything he's supposed to do. So for him to say, I'm the worst, He's trying to remind the Gentiles, like, yeah, you might think you were the worst. And I realized I was thought of as the best. And then here I am realizing on conversion that I was the worst. In fact, he uses a term that, um, that, is, that is not grammatically correct, right? And Paul will occasionally do something like this. But he uses a term, he takes a Greek adjective that means, you know, it's a superlative, least, like, you know, best, least, like, there aren't several least, right? It's like there aren't several last. I, I, mean, I guess you could tie for last. I don't know, point being, right, like if, if you're the least out of a list, right, of like skilled surgeons or, or, you know, hot dog eaters, I don't know what it is, right? If you're the least, then you are the superlative. You are the person, the individual that is last, dead last in that heat. He adds to that a comparative ending. In English, it would sound like, I'm the leaster, right? Like, I'm the bester, I'm the leaster. He is saying, I am so low, right? He's painfully aware of how bad he is. And again, is this a false humility? Is he trying to draw in people to feel bad for him? No, he says stuff like this often in his letters, 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, of whom... I am the foremost, talking about how Christ Jesus has come into to the world to save sinners. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. And he explains why. Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul's not exaggerating, right? He's in full recognition of his own sinfulness. And yet, that doesn't hinder him from giving himself wholeheartedly, Right? to serving Christ as master. Listen, some of you guys bring into your relationship to Christ and to others in the church some pretty heavy sin. And you might think, okay, that, that hinders me. It, it keep... Paul would give us an example of Christian maturity in saying, I am that bad. There's no, this is the facts. I'm a sinner. I deserved hell. I own that but I've been redeemed by a power that's greater than my sin. And being redeemed by that power, I am the least. And yet even being in the least, I have been giving by the power of God and by the grace of God this commission to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I will do it. He is clear about his guilt. And it keeps him humble. But it does not prevent him in some kind of a weird, self-satisfied groveling, right? It doesn't keep him from faithfully administering the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, he calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ that is the mystery of the church and the redeemed. The unsearchable riches. It's a a wonderful term. It it is often translated unfathomable. Um, 
untraceable, impossible to comprehend. See, the idea is that it is, it is a word that is translated so deeply, so richly, it's saying, man, you cannot figure out the depths of the riches that is in Christ Jesus in salvation. The point he's trying to say is that this is about Christ and how he enriches life. Not just enriches life, enriches like junky life, sin-dominated life, broken relationally, you know, everything is wrong, that kind of, that's the kind of life, this unsearchable, unfathomable, uncomprehensible riches that are found in salvation in Christ. That's what Christ is like. That's why the old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than anything that the world affords today. This is the posture of the properly humble Christian in full dependence and dedicated to service to Christ. He knows what he is. He doesn't shy back from what he is. He's confessed it. He recognizes it. He doesn't deserve grace, so he's not going to act like he does. And it doesn't prevent him out of guilt or sorrow or regret from doing everything he can to let others know about how in incredibly impossible to believe how amazingly rich the treasure of Christ can be, right? So we have the, the minister um, by God's grace and power. We have the revelation by God's plan and wisdom. I'll go through this somewhat quickly, verse 9 and 10. It says, and to bring to light, this is part of his commission, right? To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It is about God's plan and the revealing of God's plan. He says to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. The God that has created all things. In other words, God has put everything in place. He has planned everything from time immemorial. Chapter 1, even our salvation, right? He knew us. He saved us. He called us before the foundation of the world. He knew what he was going to do in Christ and he was going to draw to himself before he even laid the universe or material pieces together. This was his plan all along. And part of that plan was to reveal this mystery at that time, after the the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, to build a body of believers that is Christ's body on earth. That's the mystery, hidden, right, throughout all the ages. And the most crazy, wicked individuals will be gathered, redeemed, and will represent the Lord well there. In verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Can I say this? One thing I love about verse 10 is it is repeating something that we have heard in chapter 1 a lot and then a little bit in chapter 2. And, and that's, it's parallel to the idea that why does God bother to save wicked men and women like you and me? Because in eternity we will all still remember the redemption that we have in Christ. We remember his death and resurrection. We remember that sacrifice. And we will glorify God as we do every Sunday when we sing about the gospel. We'll do that unto eternity. 
And I'm not just saying singing, and I think that's a weird kind of view. I, I think the new heavens and the new earth and all that is in it will involve more than just singing, you know? We're not just always singing. I mean, maybe some of you guys are because you love singing. I love singing, right? Maybe I will. For hundreds of years, maybe I'll sing, and then I'll stop suddenly and eat some food. I don't know. But the point is, right, it's not just, it's just a verbal worship, but it is that God will be glorified for his grace and his mercy and his infinite plans. And that's kind of what's repeated here in a parallel way, that through the church, the establishment, the life, the vitality, right, the resurrected power that is demonstrated in the redemption of the individuals that are part of the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known. Manifold is that word that means multivariegated. I read that, right? I don't know what that means. I, I imagine it means it's like multifaceted. There's like a lot of different layers to it or different parts to it or something, right? The idea is that, man, what a perfect word that Paul throws in when he's talking about Gentiles coming into worship with us Jews. How multivariegated, right, is this congregation? How unusual you are to me. And how unusual my customs are to you. And nevertheless, here we are, brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's saying, does that not display to God's glory, his wisdom, to combine sinners that are all sinners, all deserve eternal damnation, and that all of them, in the exact same way, are saved by the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ. He wants to make known his glory and his wisdom. Right? And I love, I love the to whom. Well, all of us, obviously, will be testimonies of that. But who is going to see the manifold wisdom of God displayed? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It is God's wisdom that will be displayed before the angels. And I won't say too much about that, um, but I'll just read you a verse. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. These are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. They're like, oh, wait, what? Father, you let them kill Jesus? Like, is, is this okay? Wait, wait, what? You saved that guy? We've seen some of his sin. And we don't know his heart, but you do, so it must be worse than what we see. That's the individual you've saved, you've redeemed, you've washed, and you've placed into leadership in the church? You get it? That's the point. He is making known the vastness of his glory, his wisdom, his grace. Because again, Ephesians 1.10, it is about God's plan being fulfilled for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. It, it is about how God is revealing how his plan and his wisdom have have desired this and have anticipated this and have orchestrated this from before time began. Well, let's get to our last one. According to God's purpose and glory. Verses 11 through 13. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, th th this is really good, and I want us to make sure we kind of catch this, right? Right? 
it has been God's eternal purpose, right? To grant the gospel to sinners, to draw them into fellowship and community into Christ's body, which is the mystery of the church. And it is his eternal purpose that he does that, right? Through the person of Jesus Christ. This is all realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, Christ is the centerpiece of it all. This is a great illustration that was in R. Kent Hughes' commentary that I love. He talks about how um, the great conductor, uh, conductor, 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 right? Toscanini. Do you guys know Toscanini? Of course you do, right? He once gave a concert, right? And the audience was wildly enthusiastic. So enthusiastic, there were several encores, you know, people were like, ah, 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 they're going all crazy. And so then they go, okay, we'll give you a little more. And they played a little bit more, et cetera. And after several encores, finally there was a little bit of lull in the din. And then Toscani, Toscanini, right, he turns his back to the audience and he looks at the orchestra and he could be heard saying this, I am nothing, you are nothing, but Beethoven. He is everything. Theologically, what Paul's getting at is, I am nothing, you are nothing, but Beethoven, no, no, not Beethoven, (laughs) not Beethoven, but Christ. He is everything, right? This, all of this was according to God, the Father's eternal purpose, and he has realized it through and in the sphere that is the person of Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, verse 12 says, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Verse 12, right, is that magical concept that it's not just that we kind of like sneak in because, you know, he's a, he's a heavy-handed overlord, and I want to be careful. I don't want to tick him off, or, you know, I don't really belong here, so let me kind of sneak into the corner, right, settle down quietly, not cause any waves. It's the opposite. We walk in kind of small smiling, giggly, talking about stuff. The term that is used for boldness there is a word that is translated in classical Greek, right? Family confidence or freedom of speech. The idea is that it's the kind of boldness, not the braggery boldness, but it's the kind of boldness that you walk into your, into your family, right? You walk into your house, and everyone's there doing whatever, watching a video, eating food and stuff, and you go, hey, I'm home, and you just kind of, you just kind of walk on in. If you need to pass gas, you pass gas, right? You kick off your shoes, you take off your socks, right? And they're like, dude, your feet smell. Well, live with it, man. I'm your family member, right? Like, you just kind of, you just have this sense that you belong. That's the beauty of verse 12. This is in whom Christ Jesus, our Lord, he's our Lord. And yet, we have boldness and access with confidence because of our faith in him. He welcomes us, and we know it. And the shame of it is we live as if we're not welcome. This is, this, is, this is all of this according to God's purpose, right, and his glory. Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He's saying, and I know that when we have fellowship with the Father, we tend to have fellowship with one another. When we are loved by the same master and the same redeemer, we care about each other. And so I'm encouraging you, don't lose heart over the fact that I'm suffering in prison, right? Because all that has happened and everything that Christ has done and the church and the mystery now revealed, the glorious mystery of the church revealed in and through him, right? This is your glory. This is what you can understand. Don't lose heart because this is part of God's program, Because God is that kind of a God. It is to his glory and to your glory 
that he is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness for a thousand generations. One commentator says this, the bottom line is this, the church is not an option for believers, nor is supporting it an option. He says, I'm not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian, but you also do not have to go home to be married. However, if you do not frequent your home, your relationship is probably in jeopardy, right? Attendance and participation in a local church is not an option. Paul's gospel was Christ and his church. And I think that's the thing that we miss often in the theology of the redemption of, 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 of sinners through the blood of Christ and the glory that that brings God. It does. It brings God glory, and it should. It is wondrous, and so we should delight in it, and we do. But one of the focuses where the gospel is best displayed is in the gathering of a bunch of imperfect redeemed sinners. They offend each other. They prod each other the wrong way. You know, they're sometimes rude. They don't mean to, but they hurt each other. But hopefully the gospel light shines. That they seek forgiveness, they reconcile, and they honor Christ, their Savior, right? And display the glorious mystery that is the community of Christ's body, the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and then your infinite wisdom and glory in terms of drawing us to yourself and to one another in the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you that even as uh, the book of Ephesians talks about the mystery, Lord, that is now revealed, that that angels are curious about and find it um, kind of unusual and um, surprising Lord, may we still delight in what it means that we are saved and we are saved like others are saved into a community of individuals who have the same conviction, the same salvation, and the same desire to make your glory known through the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere. We praise you for your grace and ask that you'll be with us the rest of this Lord's Day to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.